what I study is very depressing. Jamar Tisby's life's work has been to study the history of the United States with open eyes. And that work has started to take a toll. Honestly, it's a spiritual battle to read story after story in all different ages of U.S. history, in all different places geographically, not just confined to the South or somewhere, about people dehumanizing other people. And not even that abstract. These are stories about people dehumanizing people who look like me, dehumanizing my ancestors, dehumanizing me. Tisby is the author of the upcoming book, The Color of Compromise. And even though he's more invested in the study of these things than most, his struggle isn't particularly unique. He echoes a feeling many African-American Christians share. The story of the evangelical church's response to the civil rights movement isn't pretty. The church was starkly divided on the issue of segregation. Biblical arguments in favor of segregation weren't as potent as those pro-slavery arguments that were so ubiquitous in the lead-up to the Civil War. Without grasping for the word slavery, there's not much in the Bible that aligns with codifying equality by race. Quite the opposite, actually. Of course, a lack of biblical support didn't stop white Christians from supporting segregation politically, or turning a willfully blind eye to legal disenfranchisement and unchecked racial violence against their black brothers and sisters being especially averse to any kind of protest movement for civil rights. They weren't exactly using the Bible to justify the status quo, but they were convinced that Scripture didn't call for its disruption. The church was, yet again, divided by political and cultural interests rather than scriptural conviction. So what was God up to? And what did His Word have to say to those on the front lines of the civil rights movement? The Christian Standard Bible and Christianity Today present Living and Effective, a podcast about the moments when humanity and the Bible collide. I think a lot of Christians today would like to believe of themselves that they would have supported the civil rights movement. They would have marched with the marchers, or at least they would have supported the cause. The reality is much murkier. The reality is a lot of the institutions that we trust, a lot of the publications that people trust in terms of Christianity, they were against it. We can be thankful for the positive impact of the movement led by Martin Luther King Jr. But certain conservative and evangelical institutions were shaky at best on the principles that guided that movement. Maybe you caught that part where Tisby mentions Christian publications that people trust. Yeah, that applies to us. The reality is that the institution I work for, Christianity Today, faced a choice during the civil rights movement. And the decisions made at that time weren't exactly inspiring. Not long ago, a podcast I do production work on for Christianity Today called Quick to Listen invited Michael Hammond, a historian and dean at Taylor University, to come discuss the evangelical reaction to Martin Luther King Jr. And part of me expected to hear that familiar story of evangelical leaders unable to sway the populist throngs, a kind of failed attempt to wrestle popular opinion into righteous submission. 
What I found instead was that many institutions were far more ambivalent on this issue than I'd hoped. And Christianity Today was part of that trend. The initial editorial staff of three, Carl Henry, Nelson Bell, and Marcellus Kick. Uh, Nelson Bell uh, was a, a retired surgeon who had been a missionary in China, but more importantly, he was Billy Graham's father-in-law. He was a Southern gentleman. He was a leader in the Southern Presbyterian Church. He was a, a sort of moderate segregationist. And, and what that means, look, we can have integration, but it just needs to happen naturally. We don't want the government to come down and force it. If you read those editorials, like, like you suggest from Christianity Today, through the, the 50s and into about the mid-60s, you can pick up one editorial and another within a month or two, and they seem like they're on opposite sides of this. I see that as there's one that Carl Henry wrote, there's one that Nelson Bell wrote. They knew that their goal was to create this intellectual world around the work of Billy Graham. And Billy Graham was nothing if he wasn't adept at trying to keep the middle ground together. I mean, that's what he did throughout his ministry, why he was such a, a popular evangelist, because he refused to get involved too much in politics. But Bell would, would write very articulately, and, and before he wrote for Christianity Today, he wrote for the Southern Presbyterian Journal, very clear arguments why the, the mixing together of whites and blacks wasn't appropriate. Uh, he would cite what he saw in the South as a doctor, uh, what he saw in China, thinking of different races together. Henry didn't know what to do with it. We tend to revere those who came before us, especially those who helped shape the institutions we love and trust. But when you take off the rose-colored glasses long enough to see the truth, the hard reality is that those who came before us made major mistakes, too. Maybe what really got to me as someone who happens to work for this particular institution is the mundanity of it all. It turns out it's entirely too easy to change the course of history with something as simple as a simple delegation of responsibility. There's a memo, and it's, it's classic. It's on that notepad that you'd see on people's desks, from the desk of, and this is from the desk of, Carl Henry. And it says, Nelson, you're pretty much our conscience on this race issue. Because you're a Southerner, because you have more experience dealing with race issues, you handle this. You handle this. That phrase is haunting to me. It's as reasonable as it was misguided. It's as unremarkable as it was impactful. And, and that decision, in my estimation, really leads to that, that fractured voice that you see, not only in Christianity today, but it also has an impact on Graham. Because Bell answers a lot of Graham's correspondence. He writes back to Southern pastors who are concerned when they hear Graham speaking out against racial segregation. And Bell, in some instances, writes back and says, look, Billy doesn't support this stuff any more than you or I do. By the time of Martin Luther King Jr.'s death, many within the evangelical movement had caught on to the fact that something was wrong in our approach to these things. But apathy seemed to reign over and above repentance. Here's Ted Olson, a CT editor, on that same episode of Quick to Listen. Shortly after King's assassination, the uh, letters to the editor uh, published in CT there's one issue where there's uh, two letters from New York, one from a uh, white pastor you know, who's de kind of decrying the deafening silence 
of evangelical leaders to to King's death and saying, uh, you know, this is, you know, literally, you know, an, an assassination and, and the folks who supposedly are against the civil rights movement over issues of the rule of law are saying nothing about this illegal murder. Followed by a letter from uh, a black Christian, Joseph Fields, he says, most evangelicals that I know do not hate Negroes, he says, but they simply do not love them. When it comes to the status quo, it turns out it's way too hard to swim upstream and way too easy to go with the flow. That had real implications for those who were negatively impacted by the way the world works. When we're talking about something we all agree was terrible and wrong, like we all agree that now. Yeah. It seems pretty clear from hindsight that what we're talking about is worldliness. The church was okay with worldliness. It's a pretty good example of friendship with the world, right? And what strikes me is just how easy it is to fall into that, or conversely, how you have to be brave and courageous to stand up to that. You have to really work at it. Black people knew that the system not only wasn't working for them, but it was constructed to work against them. And so it was, in some senses, natural to push back against this oppressive system. It was at least a lot clearer right. <laughs> that they needed to be doing so. For white Christians, it wasn't so clear because the system, and I mean politically, economically, socially, had been set up to cater to white people, to give advantages to white people, particularly white men. And so if you've got a system that works for you, then you're not going to want to disrupt it too much. From a white citizen perspective, and uh, you can include white Christians because everyone's part of the, the world they live in, you know, a lot of times it didn't seem so bad. There are a lot of times when white Christians had no clue how bad it was for black people. It feels like the Christian argument, and certainly this was one of the ones in CT back in the day, either like leave well enough alone or... Let's strive towards unity here and not shake the boat, which are kind of hand in hand. The word I would use to characterize conservative Christian interaction with the civil rights movement was compromise. With the racial status quo. A lot of Christians were willing to give concessions when they saw black people sprayed with fire hoses and bitten by police dogs. By and large, white evangelical Christians are not in favor of that. They're not rooting for that. At the same time, if a black family came to your segregated church, you wouldn't curse them out and say the N-word. You would simply say, well, you know what? There's a nice black church down the road. Why wouldn't you feel more comfortable there? It's kind of this veneer of politeness. And that's what happened oftentimes with not even just the white church, but with conservative and middle class uh, black people as well. We overinflate the involvement of Christians in general in the civil rights movement, but especially of black Christians. If you wanted to confront the injustice that was happening in that time in concrete ways, you'd find yourself in a particularly lonely position. Nobody can put a hard number on it, but somewhere around 10% or even less actively engaged in the struggle, meaning they're out marching or they're hosting meetings or, or things of that nature. Now, there could be a far larger number of people who were somehow like giving moral support to it. But the people getting imprisoned, going down for Freedom Summer, 
doing all of these things that we read about in the history books, a very small number of even black churches. So it's interesting to note that Martin Luther King Jr. left the National Baptist Convention and became part of the Progressive National Baptist Convention uh, with several hundred other ministers because the NBC at that time its spokespeople and its president were against these direct action, nonviolent protests. They wanted to work through different means and didn't think this confrontation was effective. And so King didn't really even have freedom in his own denomination, had to go and join another one. As Tisby points out, the story of Martin Luther King Jr. is also the story of several hundred ministers who found themselves unable to find support in the work of activism they felt called by God to do. For those few brave souls in the conservative church who wanted to be actively involved in the struggle, support had to be found elsewhere. They were isolated from the theological allies and reaching for courage. So where did they find it? it just think about it. You, you know you're going into a situation where you could be arrested, you could be maced, you could be beaten. What's going to encourage you? It's going to be all those Bible verses, Psalm 23, you know. Uh, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so black people uh, and and their allies in the civil rights struggle are drawing on these. And, And I think there's a certain encounter with Christ that you have in the midst of these kinds of injustices that you simply can't understand unless you get into the fray. For the civil rights activist who was a Christian, Every day, it got more and more risky and painful to be an active part of the civil rights movement. More and more, despite the hopes that their brothers and sisters might turn to them in repentance and unity, black Christians and their allies found themselves on an island. Just from a very human level, this was costly. I mean, at minimum, you could lose your job. People would sit outside of NAACP meetings or voter registration meetings and write down license plate numbers. And they would send those to the cops and see who was there and literally make a list of people who were involved in civil rights activity so that there could be repercussions. And the white community would often intimidate more moderate whites and say, well, if you're employing this person and they showed up at this meeting, you better do something about it or we're going to do something to you. And so there was intimidation going on even among white. For an African-American Christian just trying to live and thrive, doing whatever you believed you needed to do to get a hearing, the experience would have been exhausting at best and traumatic at worst. And we see this sentiment spelled out most acutely in the words of Martin Luther King Jr. I find the letter from a Birmingham jail such a prophetic text. Mm. And you can almost hear the pain coming through the words of the pages, because he's saying, I thought our staunchest allies would be other Christians, but it turns out that it's not even the Ku Klux Klanner, but more so the moderate who is an obstacle in the way of civil rights. Because rather than demonstrating overt racism, they demonstrated complicity with the status quo. They created an environment by their mere silence that enabled bombings and racial terrorism and uh, the obstinacy of massive resistance during the civil rights movement. Let's be clear. As far as we know, these white Christians weren't necessarily doing this intentionally. Their motives weren't to hurt as much as they had to do with maintaining an atmosphere of safety and security for themselves and their families. 
but the effects were the same nonetheless. And so civil rights activists, especially Christians, are looking around at other believers and they're asking, are we reading the same Bible? Right. How can you not be involved in the struggle for justice, even if you're not on the streets with us? Why are you opposing us? The church is a family, black or white, north or south. We are united by the Holy Spirit. What's supposed to happen is your burdens become my burdens. Your struggles become my struggles. But many branches of the American church said, when it comes to racism, that's not my fight. Or when it comes to racism, I don't agree with you. I like the way things are. You know, there's no hurt like church hurt. It might make us feel good to think about all the good things Martin Luther King Jr. accomplished through nonviolent means. It gives us hope in his assertion that the arc of history is long and bends toward justice. But Martin Luther King Jr. also experienced that same kind of church hurt that so many other African-American Christians did and still do. His particular accomplishments and successes were an exception, but his struggles were not. Micah Edmondson is the author of The Power of Unearned Suffering, a book about Martin Luther King Jr.'s approach to this reality. Suffering always causes that kind of wrestling for people. You know, God is good, God is powerful, God is just, God is able to relieve this suffering. So why do we find ourselves in the midst of it? That's been a very deep question, and, and it, it's, it's taken African-Americans, you know, three centuries uh, of wrestling with this question. In that period of time, it's the wrestle that often takes center stage in art, writings, and other forms of cultural expressions. Expressions of hope and joy tend to be future-oriented rather than centered in the present, and there's a reason for that. These kinds of wrestlings you see uh, in the spirituals, in the blues, in prayers, in sermons. You know, I think of uh, one spiritual, did my Lord deliver Daniel? Did my Lord deliver Daniel? Did my Lord deliver Daniel? And why not every man? So that, that, that last phrase essentially says, hey, look, you know, I know God is able to deliver. Uh, how come I'm not delivered? Why couldn't I be delivered? Why shouldn't I be delivered? That's kind of the double entendre that you find at the heart of the black church and the black experience. In fact, it was this cultural reality that made Martin Luther King Jr. who he was. That's the kind of faith that has been handed down, a, a faith that persisted through chattel slavery, through Jim Crow, through the lynching tree, through segregation. And so uh, King, when he rides on the scene, is really the, he's, he inherits a uh, three centuries old tradition of uh, nonviolent direct action and of redemptive suffering that finds ways in which to, to maintain faith in the midst of suffering, to use it as an opportunity to show faithfulness to God and to show a hope in the triumph of justice in the face of injustice. How would you describe Martin Luther King Jr.'s approach to the Bible? So King grew up in a traditional Black Baptist church setting. Okay, Ebenezer Baptist Church under King Sr., Daddy King. And Daddy King was what King Jr. would call a fundamentalist Baptist preacher. The Bible is infallible Word of God. And he just preached it 
verse by verse. Okay, and that's you know it's kind of a traditional Baptist style, and so that those were King's roots. The word roots here is instructive. It's easy to overlook your own roots because you can't see them, but they're fundamental to shaping who we become. You don't grow up in that kind of setting, being exposed to the God of the Bible, and forget him. Though we'll say for a time, it kind of seemed like Martin Luther King Jr. had strayed. When he went to higher education and he began to rub shoulders with other sort of black elites, uh, he kind of wanted to distance himself from that. And you do that thing of, where you come home and tell your parents all the ways they're wrong. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. He wanted what he considered to be a more intellectually robust expression of the faith. And, and he wanted to find ways in which the faith more thoroughly addressed the problems of black suffering and injustices the blacks face daily. King wasn't seeing the kind of social action he imagined ought to be at least allowed by the Christian faith among his Christian brethren. So he sought out something that would allow him to pursue his passions for justice. This meant Martin Luther King Jr. would go down a road so many Christians invested in social justice have been warned about. So when he got to to Morehouse, he almost walked away from the faith uh, until he met a guy named George Kelsey his junior year. And George Kelsey was a black liberal who used the categories of Protestant liberalism in order to address the issues of black suffering and, and injustices that blacks faced. Now, the way in which Kelsey dealt with the Bible is he sort of dealt with it as kind of moral tales and moral fables that kind of show us things that are true uh, about our moral lives. But he's sort of using it to address the issues of black life. So you got this kind of look at the Bible that, you know, King always believed it was authoritative. He always believed it carried the weight of divine moral prescription and, and even in a certain sense, description. As you can see Martin Luther King Jr. being pulled between those two extremes. He left the National Baptist Church for the Progressive Baptist Church because they were advocating basically the sort of I guess, non-action, right? Yeah, acquiescence. That's right. Social acquiescence. That's exactly right. And those are the two, again, those are the two predominant responses to, uh, to oppression, right? We're either going to lay down, stay down, or we're going to become militant and we're going to become nationalists. Those are the natural responses. And so it takes revelation. It takes redemptive power to embrace a third way. Sometimes it goes unappreciated just how difficult it was for King to embrace that third way so consistently. We may have mythologized him over time, but he was just as human as any of us. And that temptation toward either fight or flight when pressure is applied is a pretty universal human instinct. Even in the midst of this pressure, though, King held on to the biblical truths he grew up with. And over time, his suffering really just enriched his faith. King would often say, unearned suffering is redemptive, that we must continue in the hope that unearned suffering is redemptive. And he got that from the cross. Jesus Christ being the one who took upon himself injustice, oppression, sin, violence. And if you look at the various responses, you see, for instance, Peter's response, right? Peter's, Peter had a response to suffering, and when suffering came, Jesus' way in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter responded with violence, and he met violence with violence. He drew his sword, he resisted violently, 
And then you think about the other uh, apostles' responses. Their responses were to sort of acquiesce and run away. But in the midst of that, Jesus actually reveals a redemptive response, uh, not the response of acquiescence, not the response of violence, but the response of, of redemptive engagement with suffering, uh, nonviolent direct action. You know, entrusting himself to God, to him who judges justly, knowing that ultimately justice would triumph. And when everyone else gave up and when everyone else was in despair and thought that justice would never win, Jesus had faith in God that justice would prevail and that he would be vindicated. So King was gripped by this. Even while King worked within the structures of liberal Christianity, he still had his differences with a lot of the assumptions of his peers. King understood the reality of sin and the pervasiveness of sin, especially racialized sin. And so the kind of low view of sin that liberals were forcing upon him, King was not comfortable with. Also, their view of Christ and his view of the omnipotence and the power of God. King could not abide the idea that God is not able to deliver, right? <laughs> because he's a black man that grew up in the South. He's like, no, uh, we, we need a deliverer. We need someone that can actually bring us into freedom. It's hard enough to deal with the constant negative peer pressure alluded to here, to reject a liberal approach to sin and Christology, and to embrace nonviolent means when so many tried to pressure him to become more radical. And we've become familiar with Martin Luther King Jr.'s brave face. His most iconic moment was that speech, you know, the one that I have a dream speech. It was the moment he cast a vision for a world without injustice and racism, and he made a positive case for a world that wasn't yet. A dream he had. You might get the impression from that speech that King was always as confident, but in private, he dealt with a very real and visceral fear. One night in particular, a few months into the bus boycott, he almost gave up. He almost left the entire movement, left the bus boycott. He got in a phone call. The person essentially threatened to bomb his house to kill his daughter and his wife. Normally he's able to sort of shake this kind of thing off, but he couldn't shake it this time. He was really struggling. While the threat of alienation from his peers was real enough, the threat from the other side took on much more sinister forms. And it took a toll on King's resolve. He knew he'd need supernatural help to keep going. He says that at that time, he drew down on the theologies that he learned and the answers to the problem of evil that he got from liberal circles. And he said the answers didn't come there. So he's seeking to try to get some comfort using the resources of Protestant liberalism. And he says, I just, I couldn't get it from there. And then, and then he says, and then... I remember the God my father talked about. The God that makes a way out of no way. <laughs> and he said he called out to that God. And he says in that, in that moment, that God answered him and, and told him that he would be with him. You know, when, when folks ask me, okay, was King a sort of a, a, just a thoroughgoing liberal? I said, nah. King critically engaged liberalism, 
But when, at his core, when he was pushed up against the wall and he didn't know where to turn, he turned to the God that has been proclaimed in the black fundamentalist <laughs> Baptist church, uh, the God that can make a way out of no way. King was brave, but he was also afraid. Those things aren't mutually exclusive. And we know now that King was right to be afraid. On April 4th, 1968, he would be assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. This dark turn essentially marked the end of one chapter of the civil rights movement. But it wasn't the end of the story. And King understood this. The struggle for black freedom is a struggle that's ongoing. And it never stopped, even though King was killed. The struggle for, for freedom sort of continued on. The written word and the living word is the revelation to us that truth and justice will triumph in the end. Right. So King made it clear that uh, it may not happen in this life. And, and, and God never promises that it would. What we're called to is to be faithful in a winning war. Right. <laughs> that we know is winning because of the resurrection of Christ. So the question is, would you rather give your life to a winning battle in a losing war or what might appear to be a losing battle in a winning war? So even though King gives his life and even though there are many others that have given their lives and might not have ever actually tasted the fruits of social political freedom in this life. They did it in faithfulness to Christ, who has shown us that they were actually fighting on a winning side. And again, we're, we're called to be faithful, not successful. Christ is successful. Christ is victorious. What we're called to be is faithful. If you're looking to the, our government to see the victory, you're going to be disappointed. And, and if you're looking to where we are in this moment, you might be disappointed. But if you look 2,000 years ago and you look at the resurrected Christ— and you think about the fact that that resurrected Christ has all power in his hand and is reigning even now and is putting all things under his feet, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. then, you, then you have hope, right? Uh, then you say, hey, this thing's worth dying for. King was human. He wasn't foolish for being afraid, but he wasn't foolish for being brave either. King was the mouthpiece of a movement. The words of scripture came billowing out of his mouth like thunder. And for a moment, it seemed like all of America was listening. The potency of God's word animated real dramatic action. But the scriptures gave hope in the quiet place too, when he was alone. They motivated King when fear and alienation closed in. The reverberations of that biblical hope spread out beyond King to thousands of others who also participated in the movement and they endure today in those who carry on his work. On the next episode of Living and Effective, the Christians who marched behind King during the civil rights era were built on a centuries-old foundation of biblical hope to accomplish something new. That was in the mid-20th century. But back in the 16th century, King's namesake, Martin Luther of Wittenberg, was at the forefront of a global disruption that used a brand new technology to recover something ancient. He's in and of the printing press. He's raised on books, and he brings a printer to Wittenberg to sort of turn himself into a household name. Something like 30% of all writings that were in print at the time were, were written by Luther. This has been Living and Effective. You can find more info at www.livingandeffective.com. 
Make sure and rate and review us on iTunes to help us spread the word. Living and Effective is a collaboration between Christianity Today and Christian Standard Bible. It is written and produced by me, Richard Clark, an editor at Christianity Today, and Cray Allred. Executive producers are Nick Reinerson and me, Richard Clark. Engineering by Jonathan Clausen. Music by Sweeps, the Always People. And from the Booker T. Washington High School for the Performing and Visual Arts Choir. Special thanks to Trevin Wax, Brandon Smith, James Kennard, Michael Wojcik, Jennifer Clark, Morgan Lee, Natalie Lederhaus, Derek Rishmaui, Alicia Sharp, Ted Olson, and Mark Galley.